time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the Welcome lies. Welcome back to the Cold War podcast. I think this is episode one eighty nine. How are you, Papa Bear? Doing good. How are you? I'm great. Good. Uh, good. No, you don't really care. There was no. You that wasn't genuine I, at all. I could. Tell. I was told by my was, acting coach that that would come across as sincere. So I want my money nah. back. Anyway. <laughs> Listen, stop the silliness. We have a guest on the show today. Sorry. Uh, Sorry. Joining us all the way from Los Angeles, uh, one of the hosts of the American President's History podcast. Is that the right name for it, Richard? Uh, Richard this Lee. American President. This American President. I knew it was yeah, good stuff. something with American President in it. Welcome. You were close. You were close. Welcome, <laughs> Welcome to our show, Richard. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Richard, yeah. um, before we start talking to you about uh, Mr. Truman, President Truman, Trumpman, uh, as I often think of him, well, let's talk about podcasting. Uh, how long have you been doing the This American President podcast and, and why are you doing history podcasting when we own the rights to history podcasting? I don't remember you ever asking permission <laughs> from Cheryl. For uh, to be able to do a history podcast, well, that that just made me want to do it more. Mm. Not having permission, okay. Um, I see. I see how this is going to play out now. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we're we're Americans. We're rebellious. Yes. You know, we we actually raise a stink when we're not happy about something. But uh, anyway, so basically, we uh, well, when I say we, my me and my buddy Michael, um, good friend of mine, and. Uh, for years, um, we, we were basically whenever we were hanging out uh, in a group of friends, I was always that kid with the weird history facts, and I, you know, would and that goes back to since I was a kid. I just, I, my mom took me to the public library, and I just started reading books about presidents, and that was my passion. Um, I moved out to Washington D.C. And all I cared about was really just being around history. Mm. I got uh, different jobs in D.C. D.C. is a big revolving door. And people are in a job for maybe two years and they go to another job and so on and so forth. And so during that time, you're going to have jobs that you love and jobs that you hate. And when you have a job you don't like, you start looking for things to uh, to, to do that you can explore your passion and your interest. And history was always that refuge for me. And from there, I kind of thought, well, what's the point of learning this all if you can't share it? And, you know, people, you can't uh, uh, increase knowledge and whatnot. And so Michael, he's kind of the the jack of all trades, and he became my producer. I love to call him my producer, and my wife likes to remind me he, he's just Michael, you know. Um, but basically, that's how it started. So it's been wow. four years, and uh, it's it's been a lot of fun, and I think... You know, we're we're starting to run. We've been running ads. I feel like when you run the ads, it's oh wow, it's you guys are legitimate yeah. now. <laughs> you know, um, but uh, yeah, no, it's all. I'm sure as you guys know, but yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun. But anyway, I do want to say for the record, Richard, that um, 
right before I met Cam and we started doing the life of Julius Caesar, I was about to launch a uh, podcast, a second podcast, uh, the history of the United States through the Oval Office. I was going to cover all the presidents. So if you sense any antagonism from me tonight, it's real. It's legitimate. Okay, you took my thing. All right. So sure. Just I wanted. Well, to I, I mean, by growing up, the only thing I wanted to do was a World War II podcast. Okay. So. Oh. Touche. All right. Yeah. Well, you okay, can do one. I don't think even... anyone's done a. No one's done a good one yet. So you could still do one. There's still time. There's still time. I I see what you did there. Ray's World War II podcast is recommended yeah. by sleep doctors around the world yes. for people who suffer yes. from insomnia. They just I sometimes myself fall asleep when I'm recording. Hello, that's yeah. Hello, <laughs> let me. This is my impersonation of Ray's World War II podcast. Hello, welcome to the World War II podcast. My name is Ray Harris. You're going too fast. Anyway, you're going too fast. <laughs> uh, so why? Okay, so you're a history nerd going way back, Richard, and you wanted to do something with that. Why American presidents as your topic? Why American presidents? Um, well, I mean, I can give you the, uh, I guess the the historical reason for me. I mean, when I was about uh, eight years old, the movie JFK came out. And uh, it's it, it's a very interesting movie. It's about I mean it's a famous movie Oliver Stone. What's it did about? It. Um, the history. Uh, it's about the assassination <laughs> investigation, and basically I, I was very fascinated by it. It's a very fascinating movie. As I grew older, I realized how completely inaccurate and basically manipulative it is, uh, and how much falsehood that it spread. But in terms of being a movie, it's actually very fascinating. And that got me interested in the Kennedy assassination, which got me interested in, you know, Kennedy and then presidents. And I mean, it's kind of hard to uh, to I guess for me, it's like the presidency is fascinating. You know, it's it's this human drama. It's, you know, putting more responsibility on a person's shoulders than probably should be placed on a person's shoulders. So it's one of those things that I it's what I can't think of many things that are more fascinating than that. Right. Don't let um, Nero hear you say that. He might take offense because he thinks he's got it under control. But I do, I do, I do totally agree with you. What, there's, an old, there's an old saying. I think it's Polish. If you want to know someone's character, give them power or put them in charge. You're going to find out real quick. Because Cam was joking before the show about, yeah, if we had absolute power, here's all the crazy things we would do. And that's a valid point as well because... I don't think humans were meant to have a blank check to do anything they want to anyone because in time they probably will. We're, we're just not very good with unlimited control or power. But, that, but yeah, I can see why that would yeah, be that's Yeah, that speaks to human nature. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then that raises the question as to how much power American presidents actually have had or have today. Based well, on as, your uh, research so far, Richard, how much power would you say an American president tends to have, more or less than is generally ascribed to them? Well, I, I mean, I think that when the founders designed the the position and they wrote Article 2, uh, in many ways, and I know this is kind of a broad generalization, but in many ways they created an office where domestically the president would have to work with Congress and Congress would have the lead on legislation, and the president 
could basically, I mean, they could veto legislation. In terms of domestic policy, it was very much the president was an executive. He executed the laws. He didn't make the laws. And I think that even though presidents have had more say in the legislative process, every president campaigns on a legislative agenda, uh, they still get a lot, they still have to work with Congress, and a lot of their agenda never gets accomplished. On the other hand, when it comes to foreign policy, the president basically has taken the lead on foreign policy. There was a very long debate in early American history about how much power the president could have. Um, when Washington was president, he issued a neutrality of proclamation, or I'm sorry, a proclamation of neutrality, rather. And this was basically saying that we weren't going to get involved in a war in Europe. And a lot of people in Congress felt that the president shouldn't have that power because Congress says whether America goes to war or not. Washington said, no, I have the power to do this. And from there, I think the president has basically taken the lead on foreign policy. Once America became the world superpower and had the monopoly on the atomic bomb, his power became, uh, you know, I I don't want to say unlimited because it wasn't, but about as powerful as someone could have, um, not counting the cultural restraints, of course. And, of course, those of us in the rest of the world are grateful that to this very day America has never interfered with uh, any other country's government. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you. George yeah. Washington for that. Yeah. If I could, a joke, if I, Richard. Yeah. If I, it was a if joke, I get, Richard. No, I, I got it. If yeah. I could okay. yeah. add just on check. to Richard's answer, I think the, the great irony of that question is is it's during the Truman administration that a lot of, not a lot, but uh, the power, the, the president certainly gained certain power, like when he goes into Korea without a declaration of war. It's a police action. Um, the Congress can bitch all they yeah, want, right. but he's still there with his troops, and, he's, and the troops have to listen to him because... You know, he's the commander in chief. So a lot there was less. Well, I I was on the topic of on the topic of interference. I mean, you know, when you look at the European interference in in other countries and the profound control that was exercised there, as opposed when the United States imposed uh, multiple like multilateral institutions like NATO, which actually limited its power. Uh, doing things unprecedented like that and being from Philippines, having been born in Philippines, which is one of the most pro-American countries on earth, and are grateful for the fact that the United States interfered there to stop the Japanese. Uh, I have many good friends who are Korean who are very grateful that the United States interfered there to prevent uh, generations of billions of Koreans to fall under the Kim dynasty. I think uh, interference is something that... uh, people could look on one side of the coin on and ignore the other side as well. Well, we could unpack what that, that statement, uh, and, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's go back. So we uh, did want to mostly focus on Truman today. Uh, famous. I forgot to mention Taiwan too. Taiwan. <sighs> yeah, which wouldn't exist. It would be under the People's Republic of China without American interference. As maybe it should be. I just did a show the other day about that. But let's, uh, again, let's go back to the beginning. So we, we're going to mostly talk about Truman. We just finished sort of in our um, CIA series. We got up to the end of the Truman presidency. We've been, But we're going to go, we're going back in time. After this episode, I think mm-hmm. we're going to go back and talk about some other stuff. We're going to go finish the Korean War, I think. So we're smack bang in our Cold War series around Truman's presidency. Let's um, let's uh, start with uh, how he ended up in the job in the first place. Obviously, um, yeah. it was kind of a bit of an accident, really, that Truman ended up as president. shouldn't have shouldn't have been anywhere near the White House, realistically. 
What are, what are your thoughts on why they chose him to be FDR's running mate? And, uh, and uh, what, what did he bring to the table, do you think, in terms of being a candidate in the early 1940s? Oh, it was a complete accident. I mean, basically what happened was that FDR's second vice president, he had three vice presidents. His second one was a man named Henry Wallace. And what's interesting is that at the time, the Democratic Party uh, was a party of uh, liberals like Henry Wallace and uh, segregationists in the South. In fact, one of FDR's closest advisors was a man named Jimmy Burns, a Democrat, a New Deal supporter, meaning supporter of government uh, taking, you know, uh, during the New Deal, you know, Social Security and whatnot. Uh, And basically... Uh, you had this strange coalition, and a lot of those people did not like Henry Wallace. And what's interesting is because there's actually a documentary where Oliver Stone basically uh, has an orgasm over how wonderful Henry Wallace is, and he says that FDR had he his the dumbest move he ever did was get rid of Henry Wallace because Henry Wallace was this wonderful liberal who knew better than everyone else. Um, what he ignores is that Henry Wallace had zero political skill as vice president, which is one of the most useless positions in American history. It's the appendix of the American government. He failed at that job so miserably that FDR, basically the party had to get rid of him. He had infighting within his own party. And so they got rid of, they basically told FDR to get rid of him. Which is funny, because when, when Oliver Stone says that he was, would have been a great president, it's like, you can't just be this like, high-minded, I'm smarter than you person. You actually have to know how to get stuff done. You have to get legislation done. Uh, Henry Wallace couldn't do that. He was also a dupe. He had a few communist spies in his, um, in his campaign when he ran in 1948. Later, he repented in the 1960s, admitted he had been fooled by Stalin, um, anyway, so they replaced him with Harry Truman and Truman's claim to fame was that he ran a committee where he investigated, uh, basically, um, corruption in, in arms, uh, the military effort. And, uh, basically he had this reputation for being honest and they replaced Wallace with Truman on the ticket and Truman was going to be basically, he was already in his sixties. He was only two years younger than FDR. And here was a guy who basically was a party machine guy. He was, he was loyal to a local party boss. And suddenly he becomes vice president. And three months later, Roosevelt is dead. And, you know, here's a guy who had no college degree whatsoever, um, which in my mind is not necessarily a bad thing if you're president. Abraham Lincoln, George Washington did not have college degrees either. Um, and next thing you know, he's in charge of the most uh, powerful country in the world during one of the most critical times in history. And ever since he's been president, lots of people have been Monday morning quarterbacking all of his decisions without understanding how difficult that they were. Uh, not just any political boss, right? He came up uh, through one of the most corrupt political bosses the U.S. had ever seen at that point. What was his name? <laughs> well, I mean, it's politics. Politics plus human nature makes you wonder why people want to give all the power to the government. Uh, basically, you have this power base, guys like Pendergast, people like Lyndon Johnson, uh, who basically was a party boss in and of himself. So, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly, I mean, I don't think he would have uh, disagreed with that. I mean, it's nothing new. Chester Arthur was part of a political machine. He ended up signing, President Chester Arthur, he ended up signing one of the biggest civil service reform bills in American history. It's always ironic how that happens. But uh, yeah, I know. Shocker, right? (laughs) Politics, people want power. 
Whew, man. Could I, yeah. um, I but just want... It, it's like this huge secret that we have party bosses in America. Thank goodness no one else, nowhere else they have that. But, hold on, but before we move on, so yeah. is there anything that we can um, deduce about Truman's character from the fact that he did come up through the ranks uh, in the Pendergast organization. I mean, it was basically the mafia, but uh, on the pl- just uh, for politics, it was, right. you know, they were doing, you know, uh, uh, beating people up, making sure certain votes went away. It's not just uh, anodyne political bosses. These were these were thugs. Truman rose through the the favor of basically a, a thug political boss violent corrupt political thug is there anything about truman's character that we can deduce from that well i think that he was somebody well first of all and i'm just going to be totally honest with you i mean i haven't studied tom pendergast's career from what i understood about him was that he was your typical political boss you know i'm not nothing more nothing less i'm not you know so i i can't tell you i know the details about him specifically but I do what that I think that can tell is that Truman came up in a, a political context, mm-hmm. and he was essentially uh, he was basically a county, you know, officer. Uh, I think it was called county judge, but I think it was basically the equivalent of like a county supervisor position. And I'm sure that every day he had to make a decision as far as you know what level of politics he would play and what level of. Uh, you know, was com- comfortable with his conscience as well. So, um, uh, you know, I'm not going to say I'm an expert on everything that happened in Missouri politics in 1925, but I think, uh, you know, that's, I, from what I know, uh, that was the political context he came from. If, if I could, And he was a Democrat. Yeah. If I could merge your response to that from something that I got from your from your podcast, because I think this is really interesting. So Cam asked the question, and you and you give the the uh, standard answer, which, which every biography does. He doesn't have a college degree. I think he's the last president mm-hmm. besides Trump um, to to not have a degree. Uh, he's out. He's from out west. He has no foreign policy experience. He he does do that one committee where he saves. Well, okay. I, I don't really know what you said about Trump. He he does have. He does, did a, I have a, no idea. Degree, I just okay. assumed he didn't from sure. the way he from speaks. Trump, but okay. I have no idea. Visit yeah. from Trump. Right. Well, he 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 got an MBA, I think. But right. anyways, neither. Okay. Here nor no. There. No. I'm okay. glad. I'm. Thank you for mm-hmm. correcting because I have no idea about Trump. So, anyways, so <laughs> Truman is a from the Midwest guy. Simple. He he plays the game. He knows how the games of party politics is played. Doesn't have a lot of foreign experience. Cha- saves the country five million dollars when he's you know going around cutting budgets or whatever. I get all that, but the very reason that people are giving him a hard time for being president now, his lack of experience, his lack of education, his lack of everything that you pretty much need to be a president, especially when you're falling in the footsteps of the consummate politician FDR. You're obviously going to have people say a lot of bad things about you, and they're going to guess, they're going to second guess every decision that you made. But here's the part that I got when I put a couple of things together listening to your podcast. Truman is going to, he's going to be honest with himself. He's going to know that he's not FDR. He doesn't have, he's not smooth and slick and all that stuff. And he's uh, not really sure what the Russians are going to do, and he's afraid like everybody else. But the thing about getting a plain guy from the Midwest is when he he pretty much is a uh, straight shooter. He sees a threat. He comes up with a solution. The threat gets bigger. He comes up with a bigger solution. So he's he's not going to try this like 3D level chess 
play with the Russians. He's going to bash them on the nose if needed whenever they step out of the line. Is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. But I think that's who Truman was. And, and uh, based, based on where he's from, his mentality and his attitude and his age at the time, which you mentioned he's 60 or early 60s, I can't remember. But he, 61, 61 when he became president. But that's president. who he is. He's a straight yeah. shooting guy. If there's a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Or he's going to try to solve it or whatever. And so that's what he does for his presidency. Check out the hook Every, while his DJ revolves it. <laughs> exactly. Is that what you're Yes, but uh, and I'll just finish up with this. Everybody's expecting him to do have a nuanced response to this very complex problem that is the growing Cold War. They want him to do basically maybe what FDR would do, but he's his own man, and he's just he's just a plain speaker, and he's going to give very direct responses to any kind of threat that he perceives, and th- and that's what I got it. And so when you look at it like that. All the stuff that we're about to talk about, to me, makes sense because the government's going to gear up for a world, uh, you know, World War III and hopefully not have to go that extra step. But he's going to be, you know what, we're going to be ready because I'm in charge. And that's the, way he, that's the way he dealt with problems. Well, I think part of it was that he was learning. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, here's a guy, vice presidents at that point were very extraneous. Yeah. You know, it wasn't until uh, Eisenhower started sending Nixon out to meet with Khrushchev, that vice presidents actually had a role and were considered future presidents um, for the most part. And so Truman, I think, you know, when he takes office, the first thing he says is that he looks at a bunch of reporters and says, if you've ever prayed, pray for me now. (laughs) You know, I mean, I I think he he was only human. He understood his own limitations. He knew the weight of the moment. And so I think in that sense, now, what's interesting, it it made for a fascinating contrast Mm -hmm. because... First of all, just uh, something that that seems trivial, but is uh, if you worked for Truman, you would notice is that FDR being uh, having his his disability was obviously immobile. Truman was darting all over the Mm. place. He was very energetic for 61. So suddenly it's like uh, this force of nature, you know, and and people were seeing him darting back and forth. If you look at his his presidential schedule, it's I mean, like any president, obviously, it's it's just chock full of like 15 minutes here, 15 minutes there. So he, he really just hit the ground running. The second thing is that. FDR's cabinet members, like Henry Stimson, who had served under two previous presidents, basically said that FDR was the worst manager they'd ever worked for because he was not straightforward. Exactly. He he would tell he would tell them he was on their side, but then he'd switch. No one knew his intentions. Truman was basically like, you know, just do this, just do that. You know, this is my policy. And he would straightforward. People. So I think yeah, he. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a different style of politician. I mean, FDR gets credit for being kind of the backslapping, you know, pe- uh, pressing, pressing the flesh to use an uncomfortable phrase like that type of politician. Right. But Truman was kind of more like, a, all right, yes, sir, you know, just do the job. And, you know, I think uh, he, he just had a very different upbringing. Yeah. And that's going to affect him. Well, yeah. And this is what I'm getting for the Pendergast thing. Like he had this sort of tough guy persona that I'm not sure when he developed that, but I've always thought he seemed to be channeling Pendergast. And again, Trump reminded me a lot of that kind of persona when he took office as well. We look at the early dealings between Truman and Molotov when he had his first meeting with Molotov and he basically just tore him a new arsehole after, you know, the sort of rather cordial, uh, respectful uh, 
relationship that FDR had had with Stalin, uh, Truman came in and just blew it all up. I'm wondering if that's because of his well, Pendergast background. Well, it's very interesting. So um, Ray made the comment earlier about this sense that, okay, so you know, here was this uh, people had hoped that Truman was basically continuing FDR's policies. Mm-hmm. Um, but years after, I mean, over the years after FDR's death, uh, the Yalta Conference in February 1945 basically became a... Um, Another word for uh, betrayal or the phrase giving up the farm. There were a lot of people that basically, because FDR, when he got home from Yalta, he basically said, hey, guys, this is going to be great. He talked about peace for our grandkids, yada, yada. Then the Soviet Union took over, you know, basically didn't abide by any of the agreements at Yalta, promised it would allow free elections, promised it would allow uh, these countries to be reorganized on a more democratic basis. None of that happened, which was utterly predictable. And essentially, Truman basically said, well, uh, you came to these agreements. Now you're violating them. And uh, so actually, it was the Soviets ripping a new asshole into Eastern Europe. Um, and unfortunately, so so here you have a president that's now actually trying to hold them accountable for that and being criticized as someone being provocative uh, just because he's actually holding uh, the Soviets accountable for what they're doing. Um, I've got a lot of friends from Eastern Europe, uh, and uh, that was not a popular move on the part of FDR. And so, um, yeah, I think uh, now, you know, we can, the thing is, is that a sign of a poor historian is someone who tries to play psychology to be a psychologist because it's it's hard enough for a psychologist to understand a person in front of you but then you know when you start doing the oh how did pendergast cause uh truman's psychology and blah 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 i mean it's basically modern day freudianism you know i'm sure somewhere in there it's you know truman's response to the soviets must have been because of he was in love with his mother you know so we can keep going down that line of the pendergast comparison but at any rate you know if you want to talk real history, um, basically he was trying to hold the Soviet Union accountable for promises that they were breaking and would continue to break. Actually, we did 25 hours on the Yalta conference. I think it's uh, not as straightforward as it tends to get made out by American historians these days. Like Stalin... Hmm, That's funny, because I did a simulation uh, not too long ago, and you know, I mean, I guess complexity can hide, uh, you know, basic facts. But uh, I have a lot of Eastern European friends I'd love to bring on the show sometime to talk about Yalta because they were people that actually dealt with the consequences on the ground instead of the people in the ivory towers, you know, the critics on the sidelines. Well, that's the only job that we have is we're uh, talking about what happened and trying to figure out exactly what happened and why. I mean, it's... uh, Yeah, and it's easier to talk. Yeah, but that's our job, (laughs) right? That's what we do. We weren't there. All we can do is talk about what happened. What else are we going to do? Sure. It helps to have the self-awareness, though, when you're talking. Can can I just try to give that some context? Because, one, we know that FDR is close to death when he goes to Yalta. Mm -hmm. I wonder... I know he talked about being tired all the time. I honestly... Obviously, can't guess what his mental uh, ability was at the time, but there's there's one line that I think he wrote to Churchill right after that, and he says something like, "You know what? I did the best I could with the Russians. Unless we're willing to go war, to, you know, toe to toe, go to war, drop our atomic bombs or whatever. Unless we're willing to do something, you know, because who was it? 
Max Hastings or someone said, no, Kennan. Kennan said, the Soviets get strength. They don't give a crap about anything else. You have to be able to, to prove that, you know, you can make them do what you want to do. But the point I'm trying to make is FDR was probably not 100% doing the best he can. And I think he realized the political reality on the ground is that he wasn't going to get the Russians to move unless he was willing to move them. And he wasn't willing to do that because they just America just had three and a half years of an intense war. Other countries had longer. And I, I think he was just kind of hoping I can deal with this later. But obviously that later for him never came. If that makes sense. No, I, I think so. I mean, obviously the United States was working with a number of constraints mm. there. It's uh, not easy to say, okay, after fighting Japan on one front uh, and also taking on with working with the allies uh, to defeat Hitler, that of course it's not easy to be able to dictate all the conditions on the ground when the Soviets have taken over so much territory right. and essentially using the excuse that they need a buffer zone to impose that kind of totalitarian government there. So obviously one can actually handle all of those complexities and still come to a clear-minded answer on what was actually going on. So there are people that actually understand all those complexities but don't agree with the idea that the Soviets should be able to impose that buffer zone. Right. No, Cam and I... They're not all Neanderthals. Right, right. No, Cam and I have been over this again and again and again. And... and, uh, and basically we come to this point and we just kind of stop because we weren't there. We can't make decisions, you know, whatever. But, um, uh, what was it? Napoleon, uh, Hitler, the Franco Prussian war, whatever I'm trying to remember, but all the times that Russia was threatened by either Germany or Europe in general. So, uh, I see what you're saying. Mm -hmm. It is a very complex thing. It's very nuanced and we are dealing with human lives. But again, when you have, a threat coming at least twice from the same direction, you're going to be like, if I can ever do something about that, I will. And I think at the end of, or whatever, 1945, middle of 1945, Solomon was like, I can do something about it now because you're all a bunch of capitalists. It's only a matter of time before y'all attack us again, or at least that was the notion that everybody had. And why shouldn't they? I'm going to do something about it. And so what, yeah, what he did was horrible and uh, millions of people were oppressed by the Soviet regime. But I think he was just reacting to the threat of his country. And let's be honest, Stalin's probably a sociopath. He doesn't care about anybody's feelings. If this is going to be an effective measure, that's what I'm going to do. I don't care if people suffer. I'm tired of the Russians suffering. But that's that's as close as I can get. Uh, to sure. I mean, that. one one can explain yeah. it. One can explain right. that. Yeah. But I I mean, that's like explaining why, oh, uh, you know, uh, Hitler just thought it'd be great to unify Germany. You know, I mean, it's it's like you can explain it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, of course, you can explain the circumstances behind it. So, yeah. But what are the other options? And I'm not trying to be, you know, I'm just trying to, you know, what what could Stalin do? Could he give up Eastern Europe? I'm just trying to, you know. To say that what he did was bad is accurate, but it's also Monday morning quarterbacking to a degree. Does that make sense? I mean, you can say something. Well, I mean, I think that gets, I mean, that you cannot divorce that inherently with one, one's view of a totalitarian system. Right. So if one does rule a totalitarian system, I mean, that's like saying, well, North Korea is a totalitarian system, so they're just going to act like a totalitarian system. It's the same argument, 
right? But does one have to act as a totalitarian system? There are a number of dictatorships that transitioned over time mm-hmm. from dictatorship to a more free and open system. So it's really a matter of what direction they're going. Right. And so, you know, I, I'm not saying that Joseph Stalin should have woken up one day and then just transformed the Soviet Union into some free open society right. overnight. Right. But clearly he didn't take any steps towards that direction. And he didn't take that steps for anybody yeah. in Eastern Europe. So I, I think that's a fair thing to to right. make a comment about. No, you're right. And, and you make a good point because this is where Truman comes back in. You've got the wars over with. The Americans are quickly perceiving, or at least in their yeah their perception, they can't trust the Soviets. And let's be honest, it was a marriage of convenience at the time. The Soviets have no reason to trust the West uh, for things that I just said. And so you have basically two sides who are victorious, staring at each other, massive militaries, and yet they don't trust each other. There's not going to be any time for figuring things out or for maybe let's take a, a risk on trying to lower the tension or whatever. I mean, it's instant. You know, it, it, we go from World War II to Cold War, and I don't know. It just well, it got really intense really quick. Well, it, it, yeah. I could, if I could beg sure. to differ, actually, Please. I think that just like any situation – when you have, let's say, I don't know, I'm just, use the example of like a breakup. Right. And so you have two people in a relationship and then problems develop. And then from there, it becomes this like, but we're invested in this relationship. Should we keep it going? Right. This person has so many wonderful qualities, but then no, but this is a problem. And then deep down inside, you know, it's not the right thing. Right. So if you look at many quotes by many of the American leaders mm-hmm. in 1945 and 46, even 47, many of them are saying, Wait, wait, we just, Eisenhower knew Zhukov, you know, Eisenhower had gone to right. to Moscow, gotten awards from them, yeah. you know, Marshall, all these guys knew each other. So there wasn't this like, F the communists, gung ho, you know, the way people always portray Americans is these kind of like shoot from the hip barbarians. But basically there was kind of this, wait, okay, we're invested in this too. Let's not make a breakup. Let's not be the ones that provoke this. And there was an attempt to work with the Soviets. In fact, when, when uh, Churchill gives the famous speech, the Iron Curtain speech, it's, um, it was not uh, uniformly well received. There were some people on the American side saying, oh, no, 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 we still need to work with them. Right. So I think you went through this period of debate, genuine debate about what sh- we should do. And Truman was basically kind of trying to negotiate that. Yeah. You know, he was told, hey, Soviets are breaking these agreements. Hold them accountable. But okay, okay, I, I'll work with them too. You know, I'll fi- and that's been the dual track that every president has yeah. followed. You yeah. know, the presidents that uh, people on the left, you know, orgasm to, like John F. Kennedy, right? right. Things like, if you check the speeches he gave, he gives speeches where he says Soviet Union is evil. And then he gives speeches where he says, Soviet Union, we have to work together. And that's the same way all the way down to Reagan. Yes. Same thing. You know, you can find quotes of them saying the Soviet Union is the greatest threat to security. They're the reason that, you know, because of all the problems. But at the same time, I recognize that we have to work with them because uh, global security, it, it was a tightrope that they have, had to work. And I think that it was a very nuanced reaction that really belies the one-dimensional image we get from the critics um, mm-hmm. of American policy. I'm, I'm sorry, Cam, I don't mean to whatever, but let me just give a 15-second reaction to that because <clears throat> you're absolutely right. But what the great irony is that I know there were a lot of American and British generals who worked with the Russians, and by the time World War II is over with, they're like, you know what? 
good guys, I would want them in a foxhole with me, which for a military guy is like the highest compliment that you can get. But they're not making the decisions. They have bosses. Their bosses are Truman and Stalin, and what they think and what they advise is only worth so much. What's, what's that old saying? The, uh, the whisper of a president is louder than a scream from anybody else. So uh, what I'm saying is... I haven't heard that before, uh, but yeah. yeah. So, mm-hmm. so it's pretty much... So I think what it really comes down to is the reason Truman is fascinating is because, one, he was there, he was inexperienced, he made some tough decisions, and we haven't even gone into these yet. There's so much more than just dropping the bombs. We'll go into that. But, but I mean, what makes it so um, important is that he's the guy who's getting certain intel, he has a certain perspective, and he makes the decisions, and he sets the tone for everybody. So you're right. There, the under layers. There was a ton of there was a ton of cooperation and respect. But at the end of the day, it's what the two big dogs say that matters, and everybody else has to toe the line, which is sad because there was a lot of uh, good working going on. But at the end of the day, you've got a capitalist system and a communist system. They should have been mature, and they should have worked it out. And you could say to a degree they did because there was no nuclear war. But at the same time, we did have a Cold War, Cold war go on for decades and we wasted, I don't know how much money building and pointing weapons at each other. So again, at the end of the day, it's what the top guys say because they're the ones that are in charge. Well, I mean, I, I think that that uh, assumes that both sides are on a, the same uh, I guess the, the same level of justification. I mean, I, right. some of that money no, did right. go to preventing Soviet expansion. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when you're dealing with a world with different actors and complex actors, sure, you can point to uh, contradictions here and there. But yeah. I think that uh, there was a reason why presidents on both sides of the aisle felt that the Soviet Union was a genuine threat. Um, so, and that, yeah. that threat became real for the people in those countries where communism did spread to. Absolutely. Yeah. And so Truman is, I, I, the other point I wanted to make, and again, I'm sorry, Cam, is everything you and I just said, we can just push aside for a second. What it comes down to is, like you just said, Tr- Truman is, if he sees the Soviets going to do something, he's going to try to get them to toe the line. But even that doesn't matter. If I'm Truman's opponent, and I can label him as soft on communism. It doesn't matter that the communists were our allies for years. It doesn't matter that they basically won World War II, at least in Europe. And it doesn't matter that we've got all these wonderful relationships and we're all basically just wanting the same thing, which is the freedom to be you know, left alone and, and do whatever you're going to do. All that doesn't matter because... So at the end of the day, Truman... Even said, he even said, the communists aren't that bad. Y'all are blowing this out of proportion. Everything is going to be, you know, we can work this out. And you even said a couple of minutes ago, Richard, that he's trying to negotiate this. And he absolutely is. But none of that matters as soon as a Republican goes, Truman is soft on communism. The communists are out to get you. They're going to take everything. They're going to turn this place into a communist and everything you've worked for, you're going to lose. He's soft on communism. We need a Republican in the White House because that's the only way you're going to be safe. So again, for all these worldwide thoughts and events and plans, it all comes back to all politics are local. And Truman has got to suddenly be extra tough on the communists so he can't get attacked on the right. And so that's a really sad thing to say, but that was a, certainly a part of the early Cold War is he had to keep moving to the right so he couldn't be outflanked by the Republicans. Well, it, it kind of, de- I mean, there are different lenses you could look at it, right? Sure. So you're talking specifically about the influences of domestic politics. And so obviously that is an influence there. Right. Uh, but you're also talking about the, uh, the fact that the United States had a close alliance with people 
in Western Europe. So mm-hmm. you have those uh, those influences there, where a number of them. Are, I mean, Winston Churchill was basically he was very upset because he did not want the United States to pull out of of Europe right. because. Once the United States pulled out, that left a vacuum in Europe that would have been filled by the Soviet Union. So now, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you can talk all you want about Republican politics back home, but there was a a pressure from the allies, too, that, hey, your position, you know, our position here is weak. We want you to stay here. So, again, I mean, whichever way you want to look at it, when a president goes to the Oval Office, yes, of course, he's got domestic politics to worry about, but he's also got foreign alliances to worry about as well. He's got a number of different pressures on him. He's got economic interests for the country. So I I would argue that the domestic political sphere that you're talking about is one of many that a president has to deal with. And and it's not one where I think, uh, I mean, you know, one could make the argument that, you know, Republican presidents had to deal deal with pressure from home too to divert funds away from defense, to uh, sit down with the Soviets as well. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it goes both ways. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're not wrong. I mean, at the 1945 Americans, America had 12 million people in uniform. You know, they're wanting to come home. You know, their families wanting to come home. But like you just said, Europe is like, please stay here because there's no way we can hold the line without you Americans here. And, of course, the, the right. pressure from the Republicans. So you're right. It's a very nuanced thing. And the point the point I was trying to make is it doesn't kind of matter how you get there. You get to the point where you're you're standing toe to toe with Stalin and you're and you're telling him off. And that's not exactly the way to try to calm tensions down when both sides are now testy with each other and they don't trust each other to boot. Uh, sure. I mean, I, it, but I, I don't know if the goal at that point, Truman's goal was to hold the Soviets accountable to something right. that they had agreed. And once, once the United States and the Soviet Union had agreed to uh, what they did at Yalta, mm-hmm. once one side begins violating it, if one doesn't stand up to that, then the whole treaty becomes yeah. a dead letter at that point. And I would say that the American people, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, were, would be right to hold the president accountable to make sure that uh, a former ally, a signatory to an agreement, would be holding up their end of the bargain. So, I mean, we could look at this as Truman provoking, uh, but I think that if a president can't hold a fellow signatory to a treaty, if that is a form of provocation... Right. then maybe no president should ever try to hold anyone accountable to a treaty. Right. No, I, I, I think that's a logical, okay, that's okay. the logical. We, you need to, yeah. you yeah. need to stop saying that they broke the treaty. That's just uh, not true. Why? Why is it not true? Because all of the stuff that the Americans accused them of breaking was stuff that hadn't been finalized at Yalta. The, ter- the, the structure of how the elections were going to go down in different parts of Eastern Europe, like Poland in particular, was never, was never established at Yalta. They, they ran out of time. They left it for the foreign ministers to work out later. That all got stuck in the mire when the foreign ministers couldn't agree on how many people from which sides were going to do what and who was going to do this and who was going to do that and what the parties were going to be. It was deliberately or well, not... There, there were... Deliberately or not... The, it was very wishy-washy, a lot of this stuff, when they left Yalta. They were at Yalta for a lot longer than they expected to be, intended to be. They finally pulled the pin. Churchill had to go and do an election. And uh, it, uh, it never got sorted out. 
it gets portrayed in well, it gets portrayed by American historians as them breaking the treaty, but that's not technically correct. Well, so the first thing is that there were a number of issues having to do with representation in uh, the United Nations that had yet to be determined. But uh, I'm reading actually the uh, Yalta Agreement right here, and it says uh, that um, basically that the countries agree to um, form interim government authorities broadly representative of all democratic elements in the population and pledge to the earliest possible establishment through free elections of governments responsive to the will of the people. And so sure. basically um, I, there broadly were certain things. I mean, what I think that, that blurs the lines. Broadly representative, what does that mean? I think that, I think that blurs the lines a little bit on what was basically that what they had agreed upon already. And I think that the term broadly representative, the reason why it's vague was because the Soviets preferred it to be vague, not because, I mean, so that, that's was, the reason. And so vague. they actually, they actually built, they actually built in a loophole for themselves sure. that the United States was saying, no, this is, this is what, this is actually what it said. So broadly representative. Um, I think that blurs the lines a little bit. No, but it, so. it was probably deliberately vague, and we have um, correspondence because of the Soviets. We have correspondence between because of the Soviets. Between well, everyone agreed to the wording as it was. So you can blame the Soviets, but everyone agreed to the wording. So Stalin and Molotov had a conversation about the wording, and Stalin said to him something to the effect of, "Don't worry about it. We'll 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 uh, we'll make it mean what we want it to mean later on. Let's just agree to it as it is." So I agree with you. They were being deliberately vague. That's the game that they played. But the point is, it was vague. So the details hadn't been established, and then it got bogged down in the establishment of the details later on when the foreign ministers were meeting. So to say yeah, that they it would have continued to be so un- it, is a, it, it is would have continued to be point. vague it, it would have been continued to be vague unless they were held accountable to it and how, they, how can they you be held never accountable to a, agreed to how it how can you be held accountable to a vague agreement it was the details that had yet to be established and they couldn't agree amongst themselves well if the soviets and of course what happened if the soviets after were that, keeping it vague well, it was to be determined later. It was this is they couldn't agree at Yalta on what the structure was going to be. They ran out of time, so they all agreed on vague wording. And then afterwards, the foreign ministers were trying to work out the wording, but that's when their relationship fell apart. Partly because FDR died, Truman got all tough. Partly because of the bomb, which the US were developing in secret, they thought from the Soviets. Uh, they didn't even give them any warning before they dropped it. And by that stage, the, they were still trying to negotiate how all of this was going to work, but the relationship had broken down and fractured. So I just think we need to be really careful with how we position it. The, the, the typical American way is to say that the Soviets broke the agreement. That's just factually incorrect. That's why we did 25 hours of drilling down into it. Despite, yeah, okay, well, it's, uh, that's kind of being a little bit loosey-goosey with what actually happened. It's taking a particular perspective on it, I think. The bottom line is they well, just the didn't reason come to why it was vague. Hmm. The reason why it was vague is because the Soviets didn't want to be held accountable to clear uh, language, and on an issue of importance to the people that were in those countries in Eastern Europe. And so, it was. It wasn't vague because I. I mean, basically, it was. We won't agree with you unless we won't come to agreement. Period. Unless it is vague. So. Yeah. To say that, it oh, was, well, everyone agreed to it because it was vague is, be, is not something that... Basically, if the Soviets would have never been held accountable to it, 
that they would have never ever allowed elections of any sort, which they never did, really, a free elections. So It was vague um, because they I, I, couldn't... I don't really understand. Well, I'll try and explain it again. It w- the wording was vague because they couldn't come to an agreement on anything more specific while they were at Yalta. You don't think it had anything to do with the fact that the Soviets did not really want free elections for Eastern Europe? Maybe it did, but the bottom line is the parties couldn't agree on anything more specific when they were at Yalta. So the wording was vague. And everyone agreed to that. I'm saying it was because the Soviets had no... No, they... I, I'm saying it's because the Soviets had no intention to allow free elections in Eastern well, Europe. Well, you can make that assumption and you might be correct, but the bottom line is the parties at Yalta couldn't agree to anything more specific. The Soviets wanted to protect their interests. The West wanted to... But why, why is the reason? The West wanted to protect... What's the reason for that? The, the reason for what? Wanting to protect their interests? No, why, what is the reason for the Soviets wanting to keep the language vague? Why, no, why would they want to do they, that? that? That's not what I said. Listen to what I said. The wording was vague because all of the parties at Yalta couldn't agree on anything more specific. That's why but it ended up vague. what is the reason? Because they couldn't agree. What is, well, the thing is, first of all, they, they actually came to an agreement on the overall structure, especially when it came to the United Nations. They agreed on the whole structure of the permanent five and, you know, how many votes. Uh, they, they, obviously, they didn't come to agreement on everything, but there was a number of things structurally that they did come to an agreement sure, on. Sure. Uh, but when it came to the actual language, um, they fought tooth and nail to prevent... There's a reason why it says, quote, broadly representative of all democratic elements is because the United States was pushing for tougher language on that. In fact, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, his chief of staff, William Leahy, later said that this agreement uh, gives the Soviets leeway to basically do anything they want. And FDR said, I know, I know, but it's the best I could do right now. So what that basically shows is that uh, FDR knew that it wasn't an ideal agreement because it was so vague that it allowed the Soviets to have so much leeway. And there's a reason they wanted all of that leeway. It's because they did not want to be held accountable for having free elections. Look, at the end of the day, they wanted to protect their interests in those states. As Ray said before, they wanted to make sure they had friendly powers and they had a buffer zone. The West wanted to protect their interests in those areas as well. They wanted to lock it up into a Western-friendly trading block. So they, they couldn't... Ag- yeah, of course. They co- of course. So they couldn't agree. They didn't have enough time during Yalta to agree on anything more specific than what they got. Bottom line is they all agreed on the wording that was vague. So to turn around and say the, US, the Soviets broke the alter agreements and had to be held accountable is uh, really uh, uh, spinning uh, a bit of a propaganda story that's not accurate, I feel. Because the wording is the wording. I mean, I, we, we probably won't agree on that point, but okay. If I the mean, wording is vague... The, I respect your opinion. How can you so. break something that's vaguely worded in the first place? Now, what the Americans often say is they broke the spirit I think that's what Truman and, and uh, Jimmy Burns and those guys ended up saying, is they broke the spirit of Yalta. I mean, I, I'll just be repeating it myself at this point, is that FDR himself lamented the fact know, that the agreement was that. too vague the- because, of what, because of what the Soviets wanted. And so the only way that there could be any constraints on what the Soviets did would be 
to to hold them accountable to which I think was a reasonable thing. Now, okay, fine. Like we can we can disagree on that. I mean, you know, that's fine. I, I just I you can think that what I'm saying is spinning. I I don't think so, but that's okay. We, we I mean, we can we we're just going back and forth on this particular issue. I I don't think that um, I mean, taking kind of an agnostic view of it, where oh, one side, they're just the same side; they just both are looking for each other's interest. There are. Um, I mean, I, I I don't personally agree with that view, but I mean, obviously, you're entitled to have it, and we can keep talking about you this. You don't think the U.S. On, were trying on to on. look out for their own interests? No, I never said that. I I think that of course every country looks out for its own interests, but how there was one side whose interests directly threatened the interests of the people in those countries occupied in a way different than how the United States viewed its interests. And I, 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 that's the view that I have. So, Well, the, what do you mean directly threaten the interests of the people? In what way? Of Eastern Europe. How did they directly threaten the interests of the people? The, I would say that the Soviets pursuing their, east, their interest in Eastern Europe did not respect the interests of the people in Eastern Europe. How so? Because they imposed communist dictatorships over those countries, which they eventually overthrew in nineteen in nineteen eighty nine to nineteen ninety one. Well, they supported communist governments in those countries. Yes, but how, why is that not in the interest of the people? No, I, I think. Well, they were those those Sorry. those those governments were imposed on those people. Were they? I be, I believe so. Okay. Yes, they were imposed by military force. Right. Yeah. It would. It would be interesting if we could have the ultimate, you know, where, where's God when you need him? But basically, if you could have had a vote in 1945 or all those countries in the Middle East, you, you wonder, uh, Middle East, uh, Eastern Europe, you really wonder what they would have said, what they really would have wanted. <clears throat> but that was another thing that Truman had to deal with. I'm trying to remember, Richard, from uh, one of your episodes, it was like, um, we have to be careful. We have to check the communists because... Things are so bad now because it's obviously the end of World War II that the communists are making certain promises. And what uh, and it sounds pretty good to a lot of people who live in a war and torn country. And so we have to we have to factor that in as well. And so um, it's just another challenge that Truman and him had to deal with. Richard, if I could, um, because we're spending a lot of time on one topic and I really wanted to focus on uh, Truman. The one thing that everybody when they think of Truman, we hear the name Truman is the atomic bomb. He dropped the atomic bomb. Uh, obviously, now we can sit here in 2021 and go, oh, that was so wrong. He made, he was a, that was a horrible decision. All those innocent people died or whatever. But what your episode reminded me of was it wasn't a decision to drop the bomb or not drop the bomb. It was a decision between dropping the bomb or invading Japan, their four main islands, because they weren't going. They weren't going to give up. We had we had killed hundreds of thousands with the firebombs. Practically every every major city in the four uh, four islands was devastated, and yet they're not giving up. And so I think a lot of people just they assume that one, that Truman is a simpleton. He should have never had the job. And two, he made a, a horrible mistake when he said, drop the bomb. I'm not saying either one of those. That's just what uh, people say about Truman. But I think maybe in his head, it was never really a question. We spent all this money. We got the super weapon. And now you're either telling me to drop this bomb. And yeah, it's going to kill a whole bunch of people, but that's its job. Or I'm going to send in Americans and I'm probably going to lose hundreds of thousands of men maybe a million by the time it's all over with. So I think for him, it was a much easier decision than what we 
with hindsight, just kind of sit here and wrangle with, you know, oh my, thank God I didn't have to make that decision. Truman did. And yet most people don't agree with him. Well, I, I mean, I think in my episode, I cite a, there's a, a poll right after Truman dropped the bomb. Mm-hmm. And I think the approval rating of him dropping the bomb was 80 plus percent. Right. I mean, uh, you know, high approval <clears throat> in modern times, it's about 50 something percent. Mm-hmm. So I think it depends who you ask, right? Like right. it's basically a 50, 50 split. Um, some people think it was right. Some people think it was wrong. Yeah. Um, I, uh, there are wonderful arguments on both sides. Um, I, I think that the weight of a decision like that is about as tough as it gets. I think the weight of almost every decision American presidents or just statesmen made yeah. at that time, uh, you're dealing with a time where the wo- <clears throat> the world is killing itself. You know, mm-hmm. uh, imagine a time when uh, there was uh, the worst war in history happening. Hundreds, if not thousands of people are dying every day um, in the worst combat in history. Right. And you have a weapon that could end that all. And the alternative, now, one thing, I remember hearing people say that, oh, Truman didn't know the consequences of his actions, yada, yada. Well, maybe, but Truman also was, he served in World War I, right. which was probably about the worst fighting anyone could have served in. Um, and he actually was involved in some of the last uh, offensives during World War I in Europe. Mm-hmm. And he saw combat, and he led men into you know, into combat. And so he understood what it meant that if the United States didn't end the war, it would have to invade. And having invaded Japan, um, or I'm sorry, having um, invaded the continent in Europe, Mm -hmm. uh, a continent with, yes, absolutely, the Soviet Union experienced the most casualties in that. There's no denying that. Um, And you know, obviously we're grateful for all, you know, what the, the Russians did. Mm-hmm. Um, they basically, the idea was that, okay, if we don't use the bomb, we're going to have to invade. We're going to have to fight every, you know, uh, we're, we're going to have to invade a country that the entire society has been militarized. So you're going to see combat, hundreds of thousands of death, deaths. General Aname on the war cabinet said that he thought it would be better to have uh, a grand battle, every last woman and child yes. fighting, you know, and so National where suicide. everyone is a combatant. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, all I, 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 whatever one can say about it, I think it's important to consider those factors. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that, you know, it, it, lots of good people have different opinions on that particular sure. issue. I, there are people that still think that, okay, the bomb was one way to end it. Maybe they could have done a demonstration. Um, that was also considered. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, they felt that essentially the Japanese wouldn't surrender unless they really felt it. Right. And they had already felt it with the fire bombings and they, they didn't surrender. So I think um, yeah. those are, I think that's a debate that will continue and it's a good debate to have. Yeah. It's not one that I think uh, yeah. uh, is easy to solve. Why, so. why do you think Truman didn't uh, respond to the Japanese attempts to surrender before he used the bombs? So are you talking specifically about the when the Japanese reached out to the Soviet Union? Yeah. And, uh, well, I mean, I think that in the heat of war, there's a question of... Okay, so here are these back channels that are going on. 
at the same time, these are the actions that are happening on the ground. So you, you have to consider both of them. But I'll be honest with you. I, I can't say I, I know. I don't know. Th- I mean, it, in the episode, I talk about the fact that Truman heard uh, they intercepted those cables. And, you know, it, I mean, just being an honest historian, not yeah. trying to psychoanalyze Truman, because, I, you know, I have trouble discerning my own motives sometimes. So no less <laughs> discerning someone else's motives of someone who's been dead for 40 years. I don't know. Yeah. I'll just be honest with you. I don't know. Maybe he didn't think it was a legitimate um, channel to go through. You know, yeah. I mean, there is the theory that the United States dropped the bomb on Japan to, uh, you know, show strength towards the Soviet Union. That's a possibility. And if that's the case, then, I mean, I first of all, I, I have a certain view of the Soviet Union, and there are things that uh, I think that something can serve multiple purposes. Decisions can incorporate all of these purposes. Yeah. And they normally do. Um, I think the best can yeah. that I can try to answer that is, one, there was a sticking point about Japan having to give up the emperor and the other part was because they went back and forth on that. And eventually, I think the Americans left that part of it vague so they could at least get these guys to surrender. And two, I think uh, some parts of the Japanese military were asking about keeping certain territory that they had gotten uh, during the war. And so I think those were two things that were Truman is like, no, nope, no nope, unconditional surrender. You're going to you're going to stop fighting. You're going to stop everything you're doing. And I've got a bomb. I think. That might be a part of the answer, I think. I, I've heard accounts that, so essentially the Truman administration tried to signal to the Japanese that they would actually soften the unconditional surrender mm-hmm. um, provision and say that instead of unconditional surrender, it would have to be surrender of the armed forces. And so somehow... Yeah. I'm not sure, you know, but somehow this was supposed to indicate that this was supposed to indicate that the emperor could stay or that it wouldn't be a total subjugation of the population. Um, But I've also heard reports that that was interpreted by the Japanese essentially as uh, weakness and that the the will of the United States was softening. And so that perhaps may have encouraged the Japanese to keep fighting on. I think that's a possibility. And I think when you're in the middle of a war where you're concerned about you're going to hedge, you know, when the stakes are so high, you're going to hedge. You're going to hedge to the safest, the safest option. And so that I think that's essentially what happened. That you're, you're not going to assume that the Japanese are going to be reaching out in good faith. Uh, I mean, you know, call it for what it is. Yeah. One can criticize it later on, but I think it's, it's a natural function to hedge in that situation. But why not even reach, why not even have the conversation with them? The Japanese were asking for clarification of what unconditional surrender meant, particularly as it relates to the the uh, life of the emperor, as you know, we talked about on our show, to the Japanese people at the time, the emperor was basically a deity on earth and the idea of surrendering him up was anathema to them. Uh, but the, the Americans didn't even try, didn't even try to reach out, didn't even, to the best of my knowledge, didn't even open up a line of dialogue, which is, seems fascinating why you wouldn't do that okay you may not uh, what is reagan's old thing trust but verify Mm -hmm. i mean they they didn't have to take it at face value but they didn't even try to negotiate uh, an agreeable surrender well i'm only aware of the japanese doing a back channel to the soviets i'm not aware of the soviet the japanese reaching out to the united states and if they did i 
you know, I, I didn't know. They may have. No, um, but the United but States, I think as that, you say, were aware that they were reaching out. And the Potsdam Agreement, you know, involved the US, uh, sorry, the USSR uh, entering into the war with Japan. There was general belief that as soon as the Soviet Union did declare war on Japan, that would probably force a surrender, which it probably did in the end. It, the, the evidence seems to be that the Japanese only surrendered after the USSR declared war on them. Uh, they certainly didn't surrender after the first nuclear bomb was dropped, and the second one happened to be timed with when the Soviets said they were going to enter the war anyway. So why not wait for that to happen? The, the Soviets were about to enter the war. The Japanese had already been trying to surrender. The US knew about that. The Soviets knew about that. It just seems like a big hole that, uh, again, uh, I, I can't really understand. Uh, and, a lot of, and, and as we saw in our show, the vast majority of the American military leadership thought they should press for a surrender. Uh, there wasn't, you know, a cohesive belief that the bomb should be dropped at the time. Well, I I think there was a mix of opinion um, about that particular issue. I think that uh, the question of opening any kind of talks with an enemy at that point becomes, well, what concessions are you willing to give into the, to what the Japanese were doing? And I think by then, when you have made it a policy of unconditional surrender, that this is essentially what you're telling the soldiers that you're sending out there, that this is what we're demanding. That was essentially the policy that they desired to finish the war on. That was what they were told. People were willing to fight and die for that particular principle, that we were not, we were not going to negotiate with a regime that, you know, I mean, having been from Philippines, uh, having people on both sides of my family, uh, having experienced the, the Japanese occupation. I have, uh, on my father's side, family in Hong Kong uh, who experienced the Japanese occupation and had to flee. I have family on my mom's side as well um, and who have memories of that. I think that there was not a desire to want to negotiate with people who have committed atrocities in that respect mm-hmm. because the demands then, uh, that opens up to, to demands with a regime like that. And I think the idea was that whether it was fascist Japan, fascist Germany, uh, fascist Italy, that this had to be wiped out, period, without any concessions. I was just going to say, if I could add on to that, and, and, I'm, and I'm guessing, and I'm extrapolating here, but when Truman announces the bomb, he says, there's one particular line where he says something like, um, Japan made a sudden attack on us, or an undeclared attack on us from the air, and we have paid them back many times. Uh, something like, because, you know, we dropped the bomb from the air, whatever. So I think when it comes to America, when it, when it came to Japan, it wasn't the same as Germany. It wasn't the same as, as the Italians. Americans have this notion, um, and we can debate it or not, it's probably best if we don't, uh, that we were sucker punched, that they attacked us without declaring war. And yes, they had a plan to declare war like 30 minutes before or whatever, which all got screwed up. And so they... It was all late, but the point is, for the Americans, um, the idea of giving Japan much understanding or mercy was so much less than maybe what it was as far as the Germans or the Italians, because in it, to a degree, this was personal. And again, Truman was as human as anybody else. Yeah, you know, what's fascinating is, um, so I visited Japan in 
what was it, 2015. Um, I, I don't know. If, I mean, you guys may have been to Japan, too. Uh, amazing country. Right. Absolutely unbelievable country. Um, but I, I had some really great conversations with uh, my dad's old coworker, who is from Japan. He happens to live in Hiroshima. And I, I asked him all sorts of questions about, you know, uh, what, what do the Japanese think of what happened during World War II and et cetera, et cetera. Um, knowing, of course, that their history just spans so much longer than that, sure. uh, you know, and they have an incredible history, incredible accomplishments. And I think it, it was very insightful because I think, um, obviously, when you talk about the atomic bomb to them, uh, it's naturally a, a, a sensitive subject, a fraught subject, but at the same time, and obviously people there feel like it was, uh, you know, I mean, they don't have many good things to say about it. At the same time, they, and I can only speak to the person I talked sure. to, you know, I didn't take a broad survey, but at the same time, I think he, he seemed to say at the same time, it, it probably wasn't wise to attack the United States at that point. And I, I think the indication he gave to me was that, I mean, Japan had been really kicking ass for like decades, you know, here they are 19th century. They industrialize faster than any country in mm-hmm. history. They build this incredible empire um, and then they confronted the United States. And so, and it, it, they, it didn't go as well. So I, I think there's a nuanced view in Japan about, about what happened. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And, uh, you know, I, I think people think this is cheesy, but I, I think it's a remarkable thing that here I am, you know, I'm Filipino, uh, descent American, um, you know, my grandmother had to run away from the Japanese, but now I can go there. Right. I can visit it, you know, and I can be friends with Japanese people. And yeah. I think that's an incredible testimony to the friendships that that is developed between the Japanese and the United States. Yeah. If we can become friends after all that, then anything is possible. Right. Yeah. Um, I had I, we're going kind of long, but I kind of had a big question. Cam, I don't want to mess up your plans or your questions or whatever. But if I could real quick. So Richard, I, I find this fascinating. The Cam and I just covered this in the last couple of episodes, but during the time of Truman, um, again, to, in my, in my mind, he's a straight shooter, you know, whatever. I mean, you've got the CIA, you've got the department of defense, national security council. Truman approves the development of the high, uh, hydrogen bomb. There's NATO, the first peacetime army. Um, it's like he took, George Kennan's idea about, well, you got to understand the Russians and you're not going to change them. Maybe we can contain them. Maybe we can work on, you know, behavioral modification or whatever. And it's like Truman maybe mm-hmm. wanted to go along with that at first, but it just wasn't working. You know, they found the spies in, um, in Canada and some other things that were oh, in Turkey and Greece, you know, where the British are saying they have to pull out. And so I think Truman was to the best of his ability just reacting to what he perceived as the continual growing threat of the of the Soviet Union, even though they're just trying to, in my opinion, you know, make sure they're not attacked again. But but he keeps giving himself and future presidents more options with these various things that are added on or created to the government. So by the time he's out of office, Eisenhower and and the men that hopefully one, one day a woman coming after him will have all these things where they can police to a degree, police the entire world where Kennedy was going, no, no, that's too much. That's going to take too much money. We can't do that. And I think at first Truman agreed with that. And then I think is, you know what? 
for, forget the cost. We have to go. This this is what we need to contain them. We're going to try to police to a degree the whole world. Would you say that's a fair yeah. assessment? Well, I, I would say the first thing is that um, it, it's the difference between a plan in theory and a plan in ex- execution. Right. I mean, how many plans in our own lives we've put out a plan? How many times have our own plans gone exactly how we thought they would go, right? So wait for the and first. And so when you... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and when you're dealing with a situation that's very high stakes, i.e. the global situation mm-hmm. at an era with the atomic bomb where crises that happen that start in minutes could blow up all around the world, then naturally there's going to be this tendency to want to manage everything. Uh-huh. So I think, I think that's part of it. Um, I think that uh, now Kennan was you know, basically an egghead in the Pentagon. And he came up with this wonderful plan where the United States would primarily contain communism by supporting certain allies economically. And elements of that remained. Mm -hmm. But once, uh, you know, the North Koreans, aided by the Soviets invaded South Korea, that introduced the, the military component to right. it. And so basically at that point, the, the federal defense budget increased by fourfold, which is an incredible increase. So, I, I mean, I, I would say it's, it almost seems it, it's, it's hard for me to imagine a lot of people reacting differently. Mm-hmm. I, I, maybe there could have been a, a different way, but it's, it's, it's hard to imagine when you have a guy like Winston Churchill say that the only thing that the Soviets respect is force, then it's hard to imagine. And then at that point, you're making a decision of you're trying to uh, do what you can to secure as much as possible, yeah. you know, um, I, it, it's, it almost seems kind of an inevitable thing that it would become a militarized policy. Um, now Eisenhower came into the administration to the presidency saying, okay, uh, this could be self-defeating. Mm-hmm. We could spend ourselves into bankruptcy. Right. So he started putting the brakes on that. But I, I mean, I think from Truman's perspective, he was, looking at it as a way that, okay, we have a new threat here and I have to do what I can to confront it. And it's, it, it's kind of hard for me to imagine a president not boosting the defense budget in that respect. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at Jimmy Carter, who is, uh, you know, a, a lot of people remain enamored with him mm-hmm. and his talk of human rights. Once the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, he w- undertook a massive uh, a defense buildup as well, and he started sending a lot of aid to Afghan, you know, the a- Afghan right. uh, freedom fighters, as they called them. So, I, I would say, in that respect, um, you know, it seems to be it, it seems odd that people on both the left, you know, it, it seems that two de- liberal Democratic presidents thought that that was the right way to go. It, it, it's kind of funny how that always ends up being the reaction right. a direct response to a perceived direct threat. and just don't monk about right. yeah well hold on right. what was the direct threat that the soviets were in truman's day what was the direct threat to the united states that the soviets because i can see that the us was a direct threat to the soviet union because they had the bomb and they were basically right. dangling it in front of them what was the direct threat that the soviets represented to the united states well the- well i think if you look at the context where uh, most of these people had undergone the experience of watching what had happened during the appeasement era in Europe, uh, where essentially many, uh, b- basically there was this question of, oh, Hitler isn't directly threatening 
Britain or France. So let's let him take pieces of, uh, you know, Czechoslovakia or Austria or those countries. And then, and then he'll stop. Um, but that's not what happened. So when they waited for a direct threat, by then the threat was much stronger. So then the question becomes, uh, first of all, these are allies that we're talking about. Um, so when you have South Korea, which is an actual ally of the United States, when any of those countries are threatened, any threat in that respect, which is that aggressive, taking over a country and imposing a regime, if it's done to your ally, then the principle is, uh, what stops them from expanding more hold and more? Up, and so up, to up. me, it's Korea, understandable South why a Korea lot of was, these people... So Korea was divided for convenience sake during the war. It's not like these were established countries. The agreement was that they would be reunified after the war. That was always the plan, was it not? Well, from what my understanding, from my understanding was that there was... Essentially, you had the Soviets supporting the North Koreans and their aspirations, and the United States supporting South Korea and their aspirations. But they and so, had, from the, from my understanding, they divided the country hmm? up during World War Two to make it easier to manage. And yes, the uh, but the the plan was that it was always going to be reunified after the war. It was, uh, you know, it had, a, it had a long and turbulent history, that region. But the plan was that they would reunify the country and then the U.S. backed out of the reunification plans. The North wanted, they both, both the North and the South wanted to reunify the country and they both had plans to do that. But yes, the U.S. was supporting the South's aspirations. The Soviets and China were supporting the North's aspirations uh, to reunify it their way. But they both wanted to reunify the country. Syngman Rhee wanted to unify it as much as Kim did. Yeah, but the second you use violence, then your wishes aren't respected anymore, maybe? Well, it's their country. Their country. I mean, using violence against whom? Yeah, but when one, I'm just guessing. Can you invade your own country is the question I asked when we did the Korea show. Yeah. It's their own country. You can't, you you can't invade your own country. And that's fine until, what was it? Oh God, because I just started reading that Max Hastings book, that small unit of American troops. Once they get there and a few of them are killed, it doesn't matter anymore. America's involved. You killed American troops. Yes, we put them there, but it's a whole different ball game. But no, I see your point. I totally see your Why point. Why the Cam, fuck but... were you there in the first place? Is yeah. the question. Because I guess anyway. Sigmund Re asked us. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. No, I, I I would say that the people in South Korea did not want the communists to take them over. And, and the that's why the United Korea States halted want, it. The people in North Korea didn't want the South to take them over. Well, I have a certain view of the southern side versus the northern side. And I of think course. that I have a uh, neutral view the northern that. side... Well, I, I think that the northern side was doing to the south what the south was not doing to the north the in south that particular was situation. Like what? You mean, in, what? What was the north doing to the south that the south wasn't doing well, to they, the Well, they they essentially would prefer to not have a communist government. Right, and the north would prefer not to have a capitalist government. Well, they prefer... Yes, mm-hmm. So which side and right? and that was far more that well that was far more I mean they invade they 
took force coercively on South Korea. That's what uh, happened. Well, they say they were attacked first. Okay. Well, I mean, they can say that, but sure. Well, it's it's still a, still a matter still of debate. We we covered this uh, in our Korea series. I mean, it's still a big matter of debate about who attacked first. It's not as cut and dried as Americans might like it to be. But again, so we're, we're, we're all agreeing, though, that the Soviet Union wasn't posing any direct threat to the United States during Truman's era. Well, I would say that there was a threat, yes. What was the threat to the United States? I mean, you had two sides that had two different views of the world. and mm-hmm. I, So what was the threat? I think we could, I think we could go back and forth on this. Uh, I, I happen to think that the Soviet side promoted a system of government that was totalitarian, and that, that was a threat to world peace and security. I'm, I, you may have a, a different opinion of that, and I think we could go back and forth on that on every single issue. Uh, I believe that you know the discussion here was on President Truman. Uh, quite frankly, it's a bit exhausting to have to go back and forth on every single issue about the merits of uh, you know, uh, maybe that's your style. Um, I, I happen to look, I, I happen to believe that uh, this, the side of capitalism and democracy was right and better than that of the side of totalitarian communism. That's what I happen to believe. I happen to believe that this, the, the South Korean effort was on the side of right on that issue. You may have a different opinion, and that's fine. We can keep going on, and we, we literally spent the whole episode talking about that um but okay you you think that both sides were on the same moral plane fine i don't personally think that fine we could talk about that when it came to the bomb we can talk about that when it came to world war ii we can talk about that when it comes to korea we can talk about that when it comes to the truman creating the hydrogen bomb i mean you know we can talk about that with eastern europe like you could literally talk about that issue the whole time about every single thing here and we're not going to get anywhere because you have a certain view and i have a certain view so we can keep talking about truman or we can keep going in circles about you know uh you think that uh, both sides, uh, you, you, you know, you, you see a lot of hypocrisy in American foreign policy. That's that's fine. That's your right. I don't. We, we, but again, we can we can keep going back and forth on this. I think it kind of makes for a a boring episode, in my opinion. But uh, because it's you know, people who will agree with you won't believe me. Who people who agree with me won't believe you. It's the same argument that keeps going back and forth. So. Yeah, but I mean, it's not about it's not about who's right and who's wrong or who agrees with what, Richard, from my view. It's just trying to get clarity. We're trying to get clarity on I'm trying to get clarity on what you're actually what you what you are saying and why you believe certain things. In history, there are instances where one does not if one waits for a threat to become direct, they could be in a stronger position. Hmm. So that it's best to address that threat early. So I actually did address that. So Richard, let me let me sure. let me do one thing. Let me ask one question that I really enjoy this very much on your episode to lighten the mood a little bit, and then I'll just ask you for for a little perspective on uh, Truman based on a, a Churchill quote. If you could uh, just real quick describe to uh, the scene where Truman is driving. I think he's in a military jeep. I'm not sure. He's driving to the Potsdam. And uh, the young American driver who's been there for a while, who knows things, you know, whatever. And obviously, there's, it's a very lawless place. Berlin is this time of year because, 
you know, it's all destroyed or whatever. And the young American driver decides to try to ingratiate himself with the president going, oh, Mr. President, by the way, you know, since you're going to be here, if there's anything you need, let me know. I can get you practically anything. There's a black market. There's whatever. And I can get you some female companionship if you were like, Truman didn't take very well uh, to that. Could you describe his reaction? Mm-hmm. Yeah, essentially, he was offended by that. Um, I think that he uh, he was somebody that didn't believe in, I mean, he loved his wife sure. dearly. And, you know, here's somebody, uh, an officer, uh, and I I'm, I'm, might be making an assumption here, but I, I can imagine that this this uh, this person was probably trying to ingratiate himself with the president. Yeah. You know, hey, uh, you know, I, I'm your, <laughs> you know, get it done guy, you know, and Truman and, and Truman basically says, look, you know, you got the wrong guy. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not that kind of person. And, you know, he he's and that that was kind of one of the things pe- Americans liked about him, that he was straightforward. Yeah. Uh, and he basically said, look, I don't run around, you know, on my wife. She doesn't run around on me. We're high school sweethearts. Oh, that's right. Um, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. that's that that was the way he viewed it. Yeah. And he just said, yeah, uh, don't don't ever offer that to me again. <laughs> right. And I mean, you know, for me, I, I know that people have different opinions on this particular issue, but I personally find something to admire in that, mm-hmm. in the fact that, you know, to him when he had an opportunity, I mean, here's a man who could, I mean, he was at that point the most powerful man on earth yeah. and he could have had anything he wanted. He could have probably gotten away with it, but he said, no, you know, that's not who I am. And so, I mean, there are things that Truman did that I agree with and there are things that Truman did that I don't agree with, but I think on that particular issue, I think that speaks well to his character. Right. Yeah. I appreciate that because um, we all know that FDR had, one or two mistresses. I can't really remember a lot of men of power. You know, that's one of the things that comes with power and influence and money is you, you, uh, stray from your, from your marriage vows, whatever. But, uh, so yeah, I did admire that about him, but I'm just trying to imagine a 61 year old president of the United States who doesn't screw around slapping some 20 year old down, uh, 20 year old down in a uniform. I, I wonder if, uh, if his career did well after that, or did maybe just Truman let it go. But I just find that a very interesting moment about, boy, that's not who I am. Don't you ever bring that up again. Uh, you know, just, I just, I just admire that about Truman. He ain't, he ain't got time to play. You know, he's trying to save a world here. Well, I, I think he was very straightforward yeah. about who he was. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm not going to make, I mean, you know, FDR, his private life. I mean, there, there are, uh, I don't know. I mean, no one's perfect. So, yeah. you know, I'm not going to make any judgments on him. But what I will say mm-hmm. is that I, I, I think uh, it shows, I think, how different he was in many ways, um, because he kind of had that uh, there was kind of a sense of clarity in certain boundaries right. uh, as far as his private life. And so, I, I yeah, I, I think that kind of is expressive of his character. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, he knew who he was and he in one of those things, you know, because he liked to read books, he liked to play the piano. Uh, there was something else he did for fun. Right. But yeah, don't don't make certain right. jokes are out of bounds. Right. Near the end. Well, go uh, ahead. one thing go I ahead. thought was, uh, there was one point I wanted to yeah. make. Um, so uh, one thing I mentioned in the episode is how um, one of the Japanese officials mm. that was at the surrender ceremony on the SS Missouri right. in September of 1945, uh, to- Toshukazu Kase, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it right, right. Um, 
he essentially he was one of the Japanese officials that was basically uh you know at the ceremony um representing Japan in its formal surrender and there's a great story he tells where essentially he um he expected the worst as far as punishment yes. and then Douglas MacArthur gives his speech at the ceremony and he talks about how you know the Americans want to see a Japan prosperous and successful and peaceful and you know Toshikazu Kase basically said he was just floored and he was floored and he was in tears because he he knew that if it had been the other side that the Japanese government wouldn't have been as forgiving to surrendering Americans and I think in that moment um, you know I mean we brought up earlier uh, why didn't the United States uh, you know, do this or that. But I think in that moment, that didn't, none of that seemed to matter. What mattered to him was that there was something that was unique in the American response there yeah. that he didn't expect would happen. And I think that's something that, as an American, I'm very proud of. So Yeah, it would have been, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, it would have, if J- Japan had won or whatever, or if we had backed off and they got to keep the territories that they had conquered, yeah, it would have been, bad for a very long time. So you're right. I think that was one of the the better moments of American culture. And I just wanted to, first of all, thank you for being on the show. We really appreciate it. The one thing, and I'd never heard this before until I listened to your show was, I can't remember exactly when, maybe it was Ned Potsdam, I can't remember, but Churchill says something to Truman about, you know, you are one of the few people, I'm trying to remember the quote, I apologize, something about you're one of the few people, or I just want to thank you for help saving the Western world. We can go on about the tension between uh, Stalin and Truman or Molotov or the very countries and what Soviets needed or wanted and what the Americans tolerated. I get all that. But the point is, what I got from that, uh, from that Churchill saying thank you was, it all got out of hand really badly, really quickly. It could have went really badly, but you stood up to them. And because of that, at least by the time Truman leaves office, there's been no nuclear war. So I think I think Churchill was like, you know what? It could have really went bad. I think you did pretty good on, on checking those guys. Well, I, I mean, tr- honestly, Churchill, by 1945, mm. well, I guess 1940, all his concern was the survival of Britain right. and the British Empire. Yeah. I mean, there, there was an existential threat to the British Empire. And I, I'm, this is not an endorsement of everything the British Empire has ever done, sure. but th- that I'm just stating a fact. Yeah. And so I think for him, it was more than, than the fact that nuclear war hadn't happened. Mm-hmm. It was the fact that, I mean, he was somebody that warned against you know, Hitler and he was somebody that uh, in 1947 or 46, he, he talked about the Iron Curtain. So I think in his view, he felt that Truman had successfully held the line there. Yeah. And, oh, and they just reminded me, and I'm sorry, I know we're going long, but you said something earlier that I think gets totally forgotten nowadays, but it was front and center for them. After, after World War II ends, a lot of people are comparing the tension with Stalin with what was going on with Hitler before uh, Poland was invaded. And you're absolutely right. You can't, uh, and whether it's right or wrong or whatever, but th- this was their context. You can't appease. You can't give an inch. You can't do anything. You've got to check these guys because if you wait too long, the price for stopping some will be, will be much higher. So I think they were, when it comes to dealing with Stalin, there was a lot of just a lot of unknowns. There was a lot of fear, but there was also a lot of, uh, 
having the experience of Hitler, everybody's just going to assume that everybody else is bad after going through something like that. And I think Truman was just probably just trying to be safe going, not on my watch. I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure this doesn't happen again. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not saying that he got it all right. I'm not saying that there's a blanket, that's a blanket, uh, that's a blanket policy that, okay, every time you see a threat, just stamp it out, you know, knock it on the head. Right. That's not what I'm saying at all, but I'm just merely stating the fact that if you live through that time Mm -hmm. and you saw how much bloodshed happened because of a threat that was unaddressed for a long time, you can criticize it all you want, but it, it, to me, it's, it's not, it's not shocking that people who live through that, who live through an era where somebody, uh, was allowed to strengthen without you know, talking about the the, the Nazi threat mm-hmm. uh, that essentially they were appeased for so long that nothing ever stopped them that that led to a lot of bloodshed it 's not unreasonable to see why people looked at threats through that lens it 's the same it 's the same exact way that we look at history through the lens of what we live through right, right? like you know earlier in this in, in this interview. Uh, Cameron used the word preemption. Mm-hmm. And so in my head, the, what that says to me is that brings back, okay, like President Bush and the justification to go to Iraq. And and that's the window that we see things now, mm-hmm. which is totally natural, right? Just as that's how we see that, people at that time saw things from what they experienced. It's only human. It's, you know, we're not that smarter than they were. And so it's the same thing. So it's really, to me, it's, you know, it's, there are, there's fair game as far as, you know, critiquing those decisions, but it's not unreasonable to see why people felt that way about threats. Yeah. Yeah. Including About totalitarian threats. Right. Sorry, Cam, what? Yeah. Including the Soviets? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Including the Soviets. I mean, you know, again, that's not to say every threat is the same, but it's not surprising that people people had that lens when they viewed any totalitarian government doing, you know, taking any type of action like that. Yeah. No, I'm talking about the Soviet people having experienced what they'd experienced in the previous 50 years, uh, multiple invasions of their country, uh, having the same sorts of fears from what they've experienced about what the US and the West in general might do next to them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's this really interesting book. Uh, let me look it up. It's it's about the uh, American... Um, it's about in 1921 when... Uh, not too long after Lenin took power, there was a huge famine in um, in the Soviet Union, and basically the United States, led by Herbert Hoover, actually organized a relief program that saved millions of people there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's called, I think the book is called "When the United States Saved the Soviet Union." Uh, I'll have to look it up, but I think you know when you when you look at that. Um, there, there's a lot of different types of ways that I think America, uh, Soviets could have looked at uh, the United States. And I think, you know, depending on what particular situation you're talking about, I mean, I, I think uh, essentially the United States helped save the Soviet regime in 1920 to 24 by basically uh, providing relief for it during the famine. So, sure, I mean, you know, there are a lot, lots of different ways that one from the Soviet Union could have, could have looked at the United States. Right. 
Everything has to be complex. That's a big pain in the ass. Uh, and, and just lastly, Richard, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, if you know, Truman lived until 1972 or something like that. Yes, so, 72. 72. Yes. So I, can, I would just love to have been there. You know, he was there at the beginning of the Cold War. And I just wonder what was going through his brain after he watched one president after another deal with this and deal with it their own way and make their own mistakes and get some things right. But I just I, I would just love to have known what was going through his head up for all those years that he was out of office, um, knowing that he did the best he could. And I guess they were hoping... Uh, I, I guess they were. Ho- he was hoping that they would, when they when they were out of office again. The best that they could say is, "There's not another nuclear war." Um, but it must have been interesting times for him. Yeah. Well, I mean, Truman was a salty guy. Uh, he was a pretty crude guy. Uh, he, you know, as soon as Eisenhower took office, Truman and Atchison were rolling their eyes and saying Eisenhower was screwing everything up, and you know, he. he he didn't like Kennedy at first. He thought Kennedy was, uh, oh, I didn't know that. you know, uh, not experienced enough. He liked Adelie Stevenson, and then he hated Nixon. Yeah, you know, so I'm sure he he was a good curmudgeon at the end, yes. end of his life, probably like most people would be. And you know, I think uh, you know, having been president, I mean, the truth be told about Truman, he left office with incredibly low approval That's ratings. Right. I mean, you know, he he you know, so he you know, but at the same time, you know, I think. Uh, uh, I, I guess, you know, when you've been president and again, you have a lot of the Monday morning quarterbacking on your decisions, yeah. then it's hard to not be right. Yeah. That's why that's one of the reasons I will yeah. never run for office. Just one of the reasons, but, but Richard, we want to thank <laughs> well, you I very can't, much. I can't blame you. Yeah. Everybody check out this American president. Uh, I'm assuming it's this American president.com. Is that the website? Uh, yes, yes, so exactly. So I got it right. Excellent, yes. good. But a lot of good stuff on there. Uh, Richard, thank you very much for your time. And uh, you keep putting out those shows, and I'll keep listening well, and stealing well, from you. Go ahead. Well, one thing yeah. I was going to say, I just looked it up, that apparently Truman has a memorial in Greece. Mm. It was erected in 1963 because of the aid that he gave to the Greeks. So apparently not everybody uh, thinks that he was a total disaster. Right. Just his own countrymen. That's yeah. Fine. And, and it's not just Americans right. that uh, right. have a, you know, self, um, what's the word? Uh, ha- have a self-serving narrative mm-hmm. apparently. So it's human. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, R- yeah. Richard, thank so. you very much for your time. And I hope you have the rest of, uh, you know, the rest of the weekend's good for you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you.